Hi, I'm Andrew and welcome to the Reviewer 2 Dose Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Ollie Morton, who may be familiar to people uh, on this podcast as the author of The Planet Remade, which is probably the best regarded book in the entire subject, uh, accessible to the layman and informing the professional alike. Welcome to the show, Ollie. Oh, thanks for having me, Andrew. So do you want to give us a bit of background? Because you have a, a really kind of unusual perspective in geoengineering. Um, in the, as far as I'm aware, you've, you've, you've not written any um, academic papers on the subject, but yet you, you've been um, around for many, many years in, in, um, involved in the subject and your, um, uh, your input in the domain has been quite significant. Uh, notably, you're uh, one of the um, board members for the SRMGI project, um, if I understand correctly. That is indeed correct. <clears throat> yeah, um, well, I, and th this will actually feed into what we're talking about today because I came to geoengineering as someone who had, a, a, who, I'm a writer basically, and I've been a journalist writing about science and technology on and off since the, since the mid 80s. And I came to geoengineering as someone who had a big interest in sort of like planetary processes um, from back before we even really were thinking that much about climate change. So right back at the middle ages. Um, and so I realized when I moved from writing articles to writing books, I realized that it's how planets operate on a, on a global scale that most interests me. And my first book about Mars took me into the issue of terraforming Mars. And then my book on um, photosynthesis, which I did after that, took me into sort of like thinking about what I suppose we now call nature-based solutions, took me into thinking about how you might use photosynthesis to ameliorate the carbon climate crisis. And then I, and they then seemed a natural progression for me to write a book about geoengineering, which took Do you me... want to give us the, the book titles? Because obviously, yeah, you know, we need to make you richer and that's one of yeah. the most important ways we can contribute. To it's that. called The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. And um, but, the, it... but the other ones that you've done... Um... Oh, the other ones. Yeah, sure. The first one is called Mapping Mars, um, which uh, I'm hoping to actually revise a little bit for its 20th anniversary. And the second one is called Eating the Sun. That's the big one on photosynthesis. Hence your Twitter handle, Eater of Sun, right? Indeed. Um, because yes, and so I decided to write a book about geoengineering, and I originally intended to write a, a short, punchy book, but it turned out that wasn't the way it was going to. You, did, gonna you didn't have time to write a short book, so you were I, along. No, I didn't have time to write a short book. I just chose not to write a short book because, as I got into it, I realised that I wanted to write a lot more about the sort of like historical context and analogues um, to geoengineering, to solar geoengineering, um, but that seemed to me apposite. So the book took sort of like about six years. And during that time, maybe a little bit before, but during that time, I was uh, knocking around with geoengineering people at conferences and summer schools, sort of like fairly continuously, as you know, since you were many of those things yourself. I was and that, that's sort of what, what led to me sort of like having um, a little bit more of a voice in the community than you would um, purely as a reporter. Did you get? To, did you go to a cinema? I did go to a cinema. Yes. Yeah, because uh, Andy Parker regards attendance at a cinema as being the sort of bar barometer of whether someone's a, a true, long-standing geoengineer or not. So you are one of the <laughs> one of the club. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, um, I suppose that was one of the most significant. Um, there was the I can't remember two thousand seven or two thousand and eight meeting at Harvard. 
that was also sort of like kind of crucial. Um, and I was there for, I was knocking around at the launch of the Royal Society um, report in 2009. Where, yeah, that was at the Cavley Centre, um, quite near Milton Keynes, where I live. No, that was the later one. 2009, I don't think, took place at the Cavley Centre. I remember having dinner in Soho with a bunch of people the night before. This was just the publication oh, right. report, not the, not the meeting. Um, and oh, yeah, I went, I went to that one as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, um, yeah. We, we, we are both veterans. And have you, um, have you actually published any academic work or have you always published in uh, the general media? Quasi-academic. I think I've got a paper in, uh, in a recent um, selection of papers on um, geoengineering and geopolitics, um, which I, I suppose is probably sort of like grey literature. Um, I've worked on a couple of papers uh, that in the end we decided not to publish with a few people. I don't think I've got any, I mean, I don't, um, I mean, nothing that goes in the back of the book at Science or Nature, no, um, no. Okay, um, yeah, well, it's just useful because you've got a very unusual career and people uh, doubtless want to understand a bit more about who you are and where you come from and what you do and what you stand for. So that's very interesting. Thanks very much for the intro. So. Um, you, you talked about um, uh, your previous um, uh, work and uh, writing on terraforming um, and on, on, on other planets. Um, you've, you've got quite a serious sci-fi habit, as I understand. Um, and, um, uh, you know, have you managed to get that under control in recent years or are you, are you still... Um... Yeah, I suppose I have actually managed to get it under control just in the fact that I have just been reading a lot less, uh, a lot less fiction all, all around. And there's a whole stack of good science fiction that I might be wanting to read. But yes, I sometimes when, I, when I'm asked to describe the sort of work I do, um, I can't find any better way of doing so than that it's non-fiction science fiction, because the tropes that science fiction is interested in um, are, of course, re now real-world tropes. Um, uh, artificial intelligence, um, the search for alien life, um, planetary exploration, these sort of things. And so I always try to make sure that my, that my work doesn't just say the sort of, uh, say the sort of like old style, oh, science fiction has now become science fact, or science fact is much more incredible than science fiction could ever be, which is almost always bollocks. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I try to write from a point of view that's really informed by... Yeah, if you've read Dragon's Egg, then you can't really get a lot stranger than that to be listening to normal <laughs> yeah. science. Um, so, yeah, interestingly, um, I, I heard about a Chinese delegation that came to, um, I think it was America or Europe, to look at what we were doing to, to further our high-tech industries. And one of the takeaways that they had was that they um, uh, noticed that m many or most of the tech entrepreneurs and, and scientists had got a background in sci-fi in their younger years. And so the Chinese government then started setting up sci-fi conferences in China to kind of help foster this culture of sci-fi. And if you look at people like Elon Musk and, you know, our, our good selves, for example, I mean, we have basically been weaned on the sci-fi crack from yeah. a very young age. It's right? very interesting that some people, I mean, Neil Stevenson has written a bit about the idea that science fiction is no longer inspiring people in the way that it should and um uh there's uh there's a book the name of which i'm forgetting that uh, that he put together with some other people that was meant to be sort of like inspiring science fiction about all the things that were now possible um and yeah i mean i think that science fiction especially because it also allows you to explore 
to some extent, um, hieroglyph, hieroglyph, that's what the book's called. So science fiction allows you to explore some of the social context as well, because even, even science fiction that's very nuts and bolts has ideas about what sort of society would be using such a technology sort of like built into it. So that's also... Um, well, I'd, I'd say that's the absolute core of science fiction. I mean, like... Well, you know, yeah, I mean, you might say... You, I mean, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't say that about the Star Wars universe, but... Um, but well, uh, I, dis I disagree. I mean, Star, Star Wars is basically all about how the, um, uh, you know, the absolute power of, of um, you know, the Death Star and other... Uh, um, uh, weapons of war lead to you know this terrifying autocracy when you have this imbalanced um, hegemony um, uh, of a society. I mean, I think that that that's the story, is it not? Well, actually, I mean that's interesting. I mean, the original Star Wars story. So, if we're talking sort of like Episode Four, um, is is really Vietnam told the other way around, which may 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 fall into your position, but. Um, when Lucas and John Milius are talking about it early on, it's very clear that the rebels are basically the Viet Cong and the Empire, despite all being voiced by British actors, except for James Earl Jones, is basically the United States. And I noticed that I used to know uh, during the 1980s, I reported on Star Wars, not the, not the movies, but the, uh, the military industrial complex um, uh, effort to, uh, to, to create anti-missile anti systems that might be um, relied upon and it was very interesting to me that the people in the Pentagon working on Star Wars were absolutely clear that they were the Empire not the rebels but you know they were the people who were going to have Death Stars. I, I couldn't agree with you more this is uh, <laughs> all proving my point anyway look Ollie I'm, I'm well aware that uh, your your life is a series of interesting diversions and, and they are tr truly interesting but we are here today to talk about terraforming and geoengineering so um let's just start off with the basics give us a couple of definitions so how do you define terraforming how do you define geoengineering we don't normally bother with the latter but i think it's relevant here because okay, they're, not, they're close parallels right i think terraforming you would de de um uh define as um the deliberate manipulation of planetary environments beyond the earth um geoengineering um in is that only by humans or would that also include by aliens as well i suppose it would yeah no if an alien if an alien changes how an alien's planet works um i'm not too worried about i mean i i think that i would probably call that terraforming but i mean the alien for the alien uh maybe not because the terror in terraforming tends to mean um, making it more Earth-like, which might not be the alien's point of view. I mean, in the yeah, it'd be like I mean, the way I see it, you know, just to to give you a common perspective on this, um, I see the uh, terraforming principally being the idea of um, a, uh, a a race, be that humans or another alien race, um, <coughs> changing a planet to make it more like the home planet or more or yes. <coughs> like the home planet. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely fair and. Um, uh, I, I think it is normally thought of as being a planet other than their own. I mean, yeah, that's how I understand it too. Um, and uh, geoengineering, well, climate geoengineering, which I'd see slightly different from geoengineering as a whole, uh, climate geoengineering I see in terms of um, technological attempts to decouple the climate outcome from the cumulative emissions of greenhouse gases. Um, that's so, you know, by, by having a by, by operating on a global scale, these are, you know, two vaguely comparable technologies, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, terraforming is much more, I mean, solar geoengineering and 
uh, and to some extent um, carbon geoengineering uh, for the climate are relatively limited compared to the dreams of terraforming because they're really looking at trying to manipulate one quite small um, set of variables. They're, try they're trying to change global planetary temperature by a little bit. Whereas for terraforming, if you look at Mars and Venus, you need you know, large scale changes in the composition of the atmosphere um, and Venus. Well, let's, let, let's look at those. Let's look at those examples. So Venus is a bit of a lost cause for you know quite some time, right? It's a, a pretty hellish environment. Whereas Mars, you can wander around in a spacesuit. You know the the um, the film The Martian, where you've got the guy growing potatoes on Mars and just about surviving. Okay, it's fiction, but it's probably not completely insane. Um, and you know it, it, it's an environment that you know people can imagine living on. You know, Elon Musk has got ambitions to set up Mars bases. So talk me through the, um, the, 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 the concept of terraforming Mars. And I'd like, if you can, to give particular reference to the history of terraforming, because I'm pretty sure that Mars has been uppermost in the minds of uh, terraforming right from the start, right? Well, yeah. And an interesting point um, about this is, of course, that at the beginning of modern conceptions of Mars at the end of the 19th century, Mars is imagined um, in the popular imagination because of Percival Lowell as a planet in the process of being engineered from the very beginning, because there's this idea that planets, as they grow older, get drier. Um, and this idea of sort of like there's a general law of desiccation or desertification for planets. And Mars is and Mars is seen as having canals reaching from the poles down to the equator in order to um, uh, forestall this process. And so Mars, is, Mars comes into the imagination in the 20th century as an already engineered planet, which, is, which, is dif which makes it distinct. And so Mars... Well, they kind of got the science right to an extent there, surprisingly, didn't they? Well, I mean, they I mean... got the, to the extent that Mars is drier than it used to be, yes. I mean, to the extent that, it, that, that the great minds of former Mars have produced canals, no. But yes, the basic idea but um, smaller planets cool down faster. Um, there's, yeah, they, 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 in that respect, Lowell, definitely, Lowell, Lowell was definitely onto something. And he was also onto something in his general belief that the way to study planets was to compare them to other planets. Um, and we, we might come back to that. But the idea that planetology is a fundamentally comparative undertaking is one that I think Lowell really understood. But this means that the science fiction of Mars, I mean, quite early on, terraforming, which is a term invented by the science fiction author uh, Jack Williamson, um, not really to mean exactly what we're talking about now, but close enough. Um, the idea of terraforming Mars is baked into Martian fiction from straight after the Second World War, if not before. So um, uh, Clark's early novel, The Sands of Mars, depends on a terraforming idea. There's, uh, there's some aspect of terraforming going on in Robert Heinlein's Red Planet. Um, there's terraforming going on in the Jerry Pornell books about Mars in the 1970s. There's terraforming, of course, going on in uh, Philip K. Dick's view of Mars and in, um, and in uh, Total Recall, which is based on that. So the idea that Mars is a site for terraformation is there in the popular consciousness throughout the second half of the 20th century. So <laughs> how, um, I'm interested to understand um, the, the idea of this um, uh, terraforming. Where does it come from culturally? Because what, um, 
I, I'm interested particularly in the links between pioneer farmers in the expanding anglicised world and terraforming as a, as a cultural concept. Do, are those two things linked as I see them? The idea of going to terra nullis and then forming it to become, you know, in the, in the American tradition, like, um, you know, the, the place names Boston, Bedford, these are English place names. And, and, and that terraforming tradition, um, <clears throat> to my mind, is actually quite deeply rooted yeah, I think American that's, I mean, culture. it's kind of true that the terraforming lit, that, that, that there's a terraforming literature that's sort of like native to America, and there is this idea, and you find it in Jefferson, and you find it before that, that the that the reason that the climate of the Americas is, people say, generally in the 17th and 18th century, worse than the climate of Europe, there is a there is a, not the only explanation, but one of the long-standing explanations is that is that human civilization has made um, Europe's climate better. Um, and there's an argument that you, you see in Jefferson that if you spread yeoman farmers across America, that will improve the climate. And you go on further um, to the idea that... Um, how, has that how has that change supposed to occur? Because, I mean, that, that doesn't necessarily fit our current understanding of climate science, does it? But what, what was the... I, I think it was supposed to occur because it seemed like it sort of had, but also there were ideas about, I mean, the most famous version of this is the um, late 19th century um, mantra of um, rain follows the plow. It was thought that by plowing up the land, you allowed moisture to escape more and thus you got into a virtuous cycle with more rainfall. Um, this turned out not to be true. Um, but it, but that that idea that um, just by living in somewhere you made it more habitable was, and it was also, of course, used as a uh, an imperialist colonialist justification that you by using the land better um, showed that you had more right to use it than the people who'd been living on it in its degraded form, and that argument is particularly strongly seen in French colonial North Africa, where it is claimed that. Um, because we have records of North Africa being the um, breadbasket of the Roman Empire, the fact that North Africa is now rather arid must be down to the fact that its natives have not looked after it properly and the French must come and plant trees and create lakes and show that they are the heirs of Rome and that thus they really deserve to have this. So that's the sort of our ideological background of this. It's interesting. But doesn't this also come from a Protestant tradition of taming the earth as well? Mm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if I really necessarily think there's a great distinction between a Catholic and a Protestant tradition there, but you, you might be onto something. What's really, what's interesting in terms of di differentiating this historical point of view from um, 20th century terraforming narratives is that by and large, terraforming narratives are about doing a big technological thing to make the place that you're talking about habitable, whereas previous narratives of human intervention have tended to be that by making it habitable you would make it more habitable so it's about feedbacks like that whereas so for instance in in the sands of mars and uh, by the way i mean this is a book that came out in the 1950s but i should say that there will be spoilers for various pieces of science fiction as we discuss this um in the sands of mars the idea is to turn um Deimos, I think, but maybe Phobos, um, into an artificial sun by, by setting off a fusion reaction, thus increasing the insulation of the Martian surface and thus making it more fit for, um, thus making it more fit for, for human habitation. 
Um, and that tends to be, I mean, going through to the great terraforming work of the 1990s, Stan Robinson's Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, it tends to be the idea that you have to do the technological transformation before um, the actual exploitation of the land, rather than that the exploitation of the land in and of itself changes the climate, which is, the, which is much more the narrative of um, 19th century um, imperialist land use change. Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious distinction there is that you've got a land which can't be used in, you know, in its own current condition, right? So that's a natural step. Um, well, so in, in, the, in the terrestrial terms, uh, a land that can't be used by you for what you are trying to do, rather than can't be used at all. Um, whereas that tends to be, I think the, the idea of terraforming and how uh, of terraforming a planet that is already um, culturally inhabited is not treated that much in science fiction, except, of course, in uh, the great work of Tom Dish in the 1960s, The Genocides, in which the Earth is terraformed um, and humans just don't stand a chance because it's just being altered completely to fit to someone else's specifications. Well, there are, yeah, but there are other examples in that. Um, I can't remember the title of the book, but there was one um, sci-fi book that I read as a child, which had um, uh, like kind of intelligent minerals um, uh, on a on a planet, and, and it was going to be terraformed, and uh, it, it took a long time for humans to work out that what they thought was, you know, completely um, a barren, rocky planet was actually inhabited by an, a civilization that was in the minerals and and couldn't be. Um, you know, easily discerned the human eye. Uh, and you've also got the classic um, uh, in Hitchhikers where the earth is going to be demolished to make way for a bypass, as far as I recall. Yeah. That, so, I mean, that, 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 there that's are. Fairly, that's, fairly, that's fairly hard. I mean, yeah. And I mean, you could also say, I, I don't know what that mineral book is. I've not, must admit, I've never come across it. It sounds fascinating. Also um, reminds me again of Hitchhikers of the planet that's uh, the civilization that's composed entirely of hyper-intelligent uh, versions of the color blue. Um, the Huluvu, yeah, and, uh, it was, uh, and one of uh, the hyper-intelligent color, color blue is uh, refracted in its own freestanding prism for meetings. Ah, well, that, uh, you, you have got further into hitchhikerology than I have. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, so, I, um, I mean, yeah, there are, there are these um, accounts of um, terror, I mean, in some ways the most obvious one is, um, again, the War of the Worlds. Um, where you take H.G. Wells, right? Yeah, where you take this idea that the Martians have um, slowly been engineering their planet but are reaching the end of their tether, so they come to Earth, and part of their terraforming is biological. It's the uh, release of the of, of the red weed, which change, which is which is a large biotic intervention. And of course, in that case, um, uh, in that case, Wells is thinking very clearly and explicitly about European imperialism in, well, specifically Tierra del Fuego, but more generally as well. Um, so that's directed panspermia, right? That no, well, I mean, I, um, no, I mean, I, no, I think, di I mean, directed panspermia, which I would normally rather call transpermia because if it's directed, it's not pan. Um, yeah, okay. Tends to be about sending out life forms without supervision, whereas, you know, the Martians come and they bring with them um, the uh, biological agents with which they want to reshape the Earth. So it's not, it's not a two-stage um, process as panspermia is often imagined, that, you know, you just send out stuff that will then 
eventually sort of like grow up and colonize um, another planet. Okay, so um, let's move on to, uh, you know, from the philosophical and, uh, and fictional background of, um, of terraforming um, into looking at some of the more um, practical aspects of it. So if I have an inconveniently inhospitable planet, what can I do? How do I fix that problem? Like well, gardener's think... question time, but for a planetary scale. <laughs> gardener's question time. How do I get my garden on Mars to flower? Um, <laughs> I, I think that, um, and this is actually one of the places where I think you get a lot of um, uh, overlap with discussion of geoengineering. And the first two forms of terraforming that get discussed in the scientific literature um, are by Carl Sagan, and he looks at a mechanism for terraforming Venus in the 60s and Mars in the 70s. Um, and it's interesting that in both of them, he lights upon this very important idea, I'm not sure he necessarily calls it this, of leverage. You want to do something which sets off um, a positive feedback. So the more of it you do, the more of it it does itself. Um, and on Venus, he's, he's, he's simply mistaken about this because he wants to drop blue-green algae or what we would now call cyanobacteria into the clouds and have them photosynthesize um, and thus um, use up the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and produce oxygen and cut down the greenhouse. The problem with this is that he seems oddly not to appreciate in the 1960s that the uh, that photosynthesis requires liquid water um, and, that, uh, and that's exactly what he doesn't have enough of in the atmosphere of Venus. But so, but the idea is that it's something that once you start, it will continue itself. And you've got the same idea uh, more accurately um, on Mars, where, he's, where he and later writers like Martin Fogg are completely right to point out, and indeed Zubrin, that if you warm up Mars, you will release carbon dioxide that is currently frozen into the Martian soil, which will further warm up Mars. And so that idea of finding something where a relatively small intervention on your part. Yeah, a benign runaway drive, greenhouse effect, would, right? Would drive, and it's not a full runaway greenhouse effect in, in the, because it, it can't get up to sort of like full runaway, but it would move from, that you can sort of do a sort of like phase diagram where there are two different stable equilibria. And if you push it off the low one, um, it will continue un, undaunted until it reaches the high one, which is a good sort of like 30, 40 Kelvins higher. And okay. And so, so just the so two ways, and the, and the interesting thing is he sees ways of doing that that might be actually plausible. I mean, two of them that are discussed. Um, one is seeding um, the, one, of the, uh, one or both of the ice caps with um, soot so that it absorbs more heat and thus um, releases more carbon dioxide. Um, so and, the, roughly the thing that we're doing in the Arctic at the moment, right? Uh, kind of, but but not quite the same. Well, yeah, I suppose if you add in a methane feedback, it's a bit like that. Yes, warming the Arctic warms the whole planet. And well, you've got on Mars, you've got both water and carbon dioxide that could yeah, come out you know, of the atmosphere. Gonna, as you you're not going to get. I mean, you'll be you'll be lucky to really get up to liquid water there. You're, I mean, you're basically burning off the uh, subliming off the carbon dioxide. Uh, the other way to do it would be to make um, super greenhouse gases. Uh, CFCs and HFCs. Well, really and stuff hardcore like that, right? stuff that, um, that's sort of like got a global warming potential up in the hundreds of thousands or millions. So global warming potentials are measured with respect to CO2. Um, and so uh, I mean, 
SF6 might be um, might, might might be one to start with. Um, that's got a really high global warming potential, and we know um, that there are fluorine. I think we know that there are fluorine deposits of some sort on Mars. So you could imagine some sort of like automated factory churning out SF6 that would warm up Mars. And you know, you and like yeah, say, these are the, these are the atmosphere processes from Alien. Uh, yeah, except that aliens. Uh, yeah, except that um, this is one. I mean, the idea that you do this with one big factory um, uh, and the SF6 route from Mars is probably the only one I can think of that's remotely like that. And even then, you know, this is a this is a project that takes a long time. And then, yeah, I mean, when you say a long time, are you talking centuries, millennia, more longer? What? Centuries for centuries for warming by that mechanism, if that mechanism really works. And you know, there's a lot of uh, other questions about you know how quickly does the heat pass down through the regolith which we don't really know and so how much of the carbon dioxide abs absorbed onto um uh, soil particles comes out these are all things that you know we don't truly understand but you can imagine warming mars relatively quickly the problem then you come across um is that you don't have is and i think this is another point where thinking about terraforming should can and should inform our views about um geoengineering you have to think in terms of cycles uh, rather than in terms of stocks so it's not enough to just um create more greenhouse gas in um in the martian atmosphere you also have to start looking at cycling the elements around mars and this becomes a lot more difficult not least because Mars seems to be, and there may be sort of like cosmochemical reasons for this, Mars seems to be very short of nitrogen. Um, and that means that we don't know how to have um, a breathable oxygen atmosphere without a big buffer gas in it. We, this planet uses nitrogen. Um, similarly, if you want to develop oxygen by having photosynthesis, um, you have to have a way of um, sinking the fixed carbon, the reduced carbon made by photosynthesis, the biomass, uh, that has to be taken out of the system because otherwise it will just react with the oxygen and you'll have no net buildup of oxygen. And so you need to have a way of burying away um, uh, reduced carbon. And on Earth, you have a nice, um, both a nice hydrological cycle that can take it to deep, deep sinks in the ocean. And you have um, a long-term um, uh, geochemical cycle that, that deals with uh, with reduced carbon. On Mars, you don't have any of that, and I'm not sure... But you're saying that basically you need coal measures on Mars to make Mars well, work? You need to be able to make coal measures, and th and now we're talking about things that last tens, so, hundreds of thousands of years. So, so talk, yeah, talk me through that, because that's really interesting. So you're basically saying that, you know, the uh, so ge biogeochemically, what's going on there? Why do you need coal measures? I've never thought of coal measures as being particularly essential or important. I mean, it's you have life before... Coal, I mean, coal measures per se, but what you need is if you have a if you have a biosystem if you if you have a biosphere um, that's based on oxygenic photosynthesis like ours is the only way you get oxygen I mean the plants are taking carbon dioxide and water and making them into oxygen and reduced carbon biomass carbon and if you don't get rid of some fraction of that biomass carbon then the oxygen will all just react with it straight away again um, and so over time, you have to have, all, and this is why, you know, the Earth's oxygen level both changes a little bit and also over, um, over long periods of time 
gets larger is that more and more reduced carbon is being sequestered into the crust in ways that make it inaccessible. And the coal measures um, are, are a very good example of that. And there's, you know, lively debate about how much the creation of coal in the Carboniferous leads to an increase in oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, there's certainly some increase. I mean, we, ha we had a breathable atmosphere before the yeah, Carboniferous. no, absolutely. I mean, we Absolutely. No, the breathable, I mean, well, it depends breathable to whom, but yeah, the atmosphere is clearly breathable to complex life forms by um, <clears throat> the late Proterozoic. Um, but there's also some evidence that there's an oxygen spurt um, around the Carboniferous, which is, seems to be clearly associated with the burial of a very large amount of what you might call refractory carbon. Because when people, when evolution learns out how out, learns how to make wood, wood is a lot harder for bugs to break down than previous forms of biomass have been. And you know, lignin is actually a hard um, polymer to break down. And so wood that goes down into anoxic depths in swamps. And if you think about you know the sort of like childhood pictures of the Carboniferous we would have had, it would have been sort of like big swampy forests. Um, that gets buried as coal, and as a result, oxygen levels go up. Now, leaving aside the, the details of that, you have to do something like that if you're going to use photosynthesis to put oxygen into the atmosphere of Mars. You have to have some sort of measure um, that takes the reduced carbon out of the equation. So basically what you're saying is fundamentally um, creating a, a, an oxygen-bearing atmosphere is actually a carbon disposal process. Yeah, it's a photosynthesis and carbon disposal process. But, I've never thought of it like that. But there again, you get the, you, and that's where you get into an argument that was quite live in the sort of like late 1990s as the Mars Society was starting up under the, under the aegis of Bob Zubrin about whether you would rather make an Earth-like environment on Mars, which would take tens, hundreds of thousands of years to get an oxygen level that was breathable. Um, or whether you should actually just get um, an environment that was good enough for microbes. And this depends on the idea of whether, and it could take us back to the question of original inhabitants. There is a view that Mars may have a residual deep biosphere of its own inhabitants, microbial inhabitants. And that if you, and that the, the moral challenge would be to warm up Mars so that these creatures could move back to the surface but not to attempt to make it um, an oxygen-rich atmosphere, which they would dislike. And so make it something more like the Earth was before oxygen, which is almost certainly the way that if Mars ever had um, a climate that supported a, a, a global biosphere, it would almost certainly have been anoxic in that way. And so, the, so, what, so what, what, what historically was Mars like? I mean, at the moment it's a dry desert, but we know it had, you know, lakes and clays and rivers and stuff like that. So it must have it had was, an active... It was warmer and wetter, but exactly what form of warm and wetness? Um, it clearly had catastrophic episodes of um, water release. You can see these extraordinary flood features uh, where water came out of the permafrost, uh, from below the permafrost um, at pressure and scoured out plains. But whether it ever had a stable environment in which there was open water for millions of years on the surface, I think is still a moderately open question. It's possible that almost all its lakes were mostly ice covered. Um, it's possible that 
were it ever to have had an ocean, and that's still a topic of live debate. It's got a, a big depression in the Northern Hemisphere, which um, Tim Parker who led the work that argued that there were sort of like paleo um, shorelines all around this depression. Um, but if it ever had an ocean, it's an open question as to whether that ocean would ever have been open to the sky or whether it would have been um, so there's sort of like some. So, so you're sort of painting a picture more like water eruptions on Mars yeah, than actually. Yeah, no, what no, we might water, know is... that's that, that that's certainly later on in Mars. There, there's strong evidence for these large eruptions of water from underneath the surface, um, which lead to incredible scouring uh, uh, land. So that's similar in a way to what the surface is. It in Kelidus has is that right? So um, like no, not really. Because of... I mean, in, in some way, I mean, in, in has a has has a global. This is one of the moons of Saturn. That, um, Which is the has, one that's got the water geysers that shoot yeah, up into the that, sky. That, that that that's Enceladus, and um, it's but it's got a sort of like global ocean under ice. What Mars may have been more like is sort of like um, uh, imagine if at the end of or at the crucial moment of David Cronenberg's The Fly. Um, you'd put a you'd put a desert planet and um, Europa into the uh, into the matter transporter and got a hybrid of both of those. So it was basically Mars had a cryosphere, but it also had a lithosphere that came up above the cryosphere, and most of the water was probably um, underground most of the time. But so you're, so you're talking about something a little bit like modern day Antarctica, then, right? So yeah, mo something much of the more continent. like modern day Antarctica. Because, um, you know, in Antarctica, you have um, lakes under the ice. Um, so, yeah, more like that. So it could and be... What was the, what was the pressure, pressure and temperature like um, and, but, the, um, well, it was uh, and the composition? Quite, I, I mean, don't forget, the other thing is that, you know, in the early solar system, you are still having quite large impacts quite a lot of the time. And the heat flux that you get from creating something like Gale Crater, which is where the, uh, the Mars Curiosity rover is at the moment, and which clearly used to be a lake. Um, the heat flux when you make a, a crater that's 180 kilometers across is quite huge. And so all the regional underground water would have, uh, underground ice would have been melted by that, by that pulse. So, you know, you have a very strange climate and we, it used to be that there was this idea that Mars was, had a, had a warm, wet past and now had a cold, dry present. And though the past of Mars was definitely warmer and wetter, I, I think it's very open question as to whether it ever really looked like, um, like the Earth did or, or like, the, like we think of the temperate Earth as looking. It may uh, always have what about um, what about the atmospheric pressure and composition? I mean, was well, the it atmospheric a... pressure went down over time, um, and that's partly. And you know, there are different mechanisms involved in that escape, um, but that's definitely part of the story as to how the how the climate cools down, um, because we know that Mars. I mean, among other things, the Earth has a nice um, intrinsic um, magnetic field which stops sputtering off the top of the atmosphere. But Mars doesn't enjoy that benefit, and so the, is that because it doesn't have a molten iron core? Is that what's the? the it, uh, it does have a molten iron core. It's a very lackadaisical one. Um, it does. I mean, there's. I mean, it probably. I mean, it looks as though um, its uh, its core froze um, fairly early on. There's a. There's because a it's a small planet, right? Yeah, so the core just, they just ran out of steam, right? It loses heat faster. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. 
It's possible that you can have a liquid core without a dynamo in it, um, but, uh, and it, but it's the dynamo that you really want. And the dynamo. But how, 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 I mean, what you're describing there is a planet that's basically, you know, pretty far gone, right? Um, is Mars anything more than scrap value? Can it be, you know, readily re restored to its former glory or not? Well, that's a, you know, that's a really, I mean, that's, that's the real question, isn't it? Because um, it, I can imagine that you can have technologies that would um, restore Mars um, to something that was, you know, Antarctica levels of habitability. But, but even, if, like, even if you put, I mean, even if you put the dynamo back on, right, the atmosphere's gone, right? So you can't, you can't, you can't solve the problem by restoring a magnetic field now because well, you do have a lot nothing... of carbon you do have a lot of carbon dioxide um frozen into the um frozen into the um into the regolith but how much you can't say so yeah it would probably still i mean the and the idea of making it up to um earth-like temperature and pressure is very very hard to do and i think that um i think it was actually freeman dyson um who suggested that one thing you might have to do would be basically set up a system for bringing large amounts of nitrogen from the outer solar system and uh, dumping it on Mars. Um, to and, yeah, give you that buffer atmosphere, so you're not trying to breathe pure oxygen, right? Yes, absolutely. And you're. I mean, what, what about what about modifying humans? I mean, like it seems to be easier to modify humans so they can breathe more oxygen than it does to modify the entirety of Mars. So that it's got 80% nitrogen in the atmosphere. I mean, I, I can imagine I could probably survive in 30% oxygen without too much trouble. But hang on, you're sure surviving you in 20% oxygen now. So um, uh, you could, I mean, that's, that's a possible thing to do, um, I suppose. I mean, you know, humans do need a lot of energy and, ox and oxygen is how we get it. it I mean, if, uh, but this is, a, this is a point that's very much uh, becomes part of the debate in science fiction in the 1970s with a seminal novel by Fred Pohl called Man Plus, which is precisely about engineering humans so that they can live on Mars. And there's an earlier story, the name of which I'm forgetting, by Walter M. Miller, uh, which again has these people who are, that basically ta involves taking people from very high altitudes um, on Earth and altering them so that they can live on very, very thin atmospheric oxygen on Mars. Um, it's conceived, I mean, and you know, there's a, there's, there's a long history of um, science fiction which imagines adapting humans to other planets rather than other planets. Yeah, my instinct is some kind of hybrid would, would be done. I mean, like, it's not that difficult. You know, po populations of humans are quite different in many ways, as you say. You know, the, certainly the pressure tolerance is a is a big variant, and several human yeah, populations in the Andes and stuff have but, evolved. You know, if we're getting down to the, if we're getting to the question of oxygen, um, we are talking tens to hundreds of thousand years in the future, even in sort of best case. There is, I mean, the sim the, the amount of mass you have to move um, in order to do that takes a very long time. Um, I think there's some, I mean, you know, there's, uh, there's a lovely, uh, I don't know if you've read um, one of the better terror, one of the better geoengineering novels of recent years. Um, I mean, a very good novel in its own right, Paul McCauley's Austral, um, in which there are humans who've been modified um, to be able to um, live basically um, reasonably unsheltered life in a changed Antarctica. Um, and you know, with differences in their 
uh, myoglobin, hemoglobin balance and things like that. It's a, it's a terrific book. Um, but what, sorry, what's myoglobin? Said, I'm not familiar with that. Chat, right? So, so, so what, what, Myoglobin is, 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 the, is the thing that takes oxygen from hemoglobin into um, muscles, if I remember correctly. And okay, I but I mean, humans can survive qu quite comfortably in Antarctica anyway. I mean, people, you know, do um, quite Not non-technologically. Non um, you know, there is no, and at the moment, no one lives on Antarctica um, as an actual inhabitant. No, but I mean, that's because, I mean, there's not a lot down there, but people walk around in what you might call normal clothes for much of the year. Yeah, I mean, much of the year. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, the, the idea is not necessarily that this is the only thing, the only way that you could do it. It's the idea that there would be such ways of doing things. And that's, you know, okay. that's often the way. It's not, I don't know. I make the point. Um, a a geoengineered or non-geoengineered Earth is still going to be a lot more like earth is today than a habitable mars is like mars today i mean turning mars into um a habitable planet even a marginally habitable planet with no oxygen in the atmosphere is a massive undertaking um yeah i mean it's it's, it's a very very different i mean like the, the air pressure is like 10 percent the it's you know good sort of it's it's, it's the year-round te temperatures the, the are similar air, to antarctica pressure, the surface air pressure is about one percent of earth is it oh is that low yeah. Okay, I thought it was much. I thought it was a bit, quite a bit higher. It's than about that. the same pressure as you would have in the mid stratosphere. It's about six. It's about six millibars. Okay, I didn't realise it was that low. Um, so um, uh, that's that. That's well over what humans can survive at, isn't it? Even if the, if it was a normal atmosphere. I mean, how how like Everest, you can just about breathe on Everest without oxygen, can't no, you? Yes. No, it's 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 a, it's an order of magnitude too bad. Um, okay. Yeah, you really can't. You really can't be doing with, 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 with that at all. So, uh, it, it, one of the techniques I uh, heard about, and the same sort of as practical as these things get, is basically getting very large nuclear bombs to create a very deep crater on Mars so that you had additional pressure at the bottom and you had some degree of shielding to, you know, so that you, you, you'd keep the temperature up because you'd have a bit of a sort of uh, thermal battery effect from all this rock around you that had been heated by the sun. So um, is that at all practical or is that just people looking for things to do with nuclear weapons because they like explosions? Well, yeah, there is a... It's a fine hobby. I wouldn't criticise it. But. Uh, I, I, there, is a, there is an idea involving very, very large um, linear nuclear explosives um, uh, in Martin Fogg's book on terraforming. I, I, I think the idea is to release nitrogen from nitrate um, basins that we haven't, as it happens, yet found on Mars. Um, but if you want to make big holes in Mars, um, again, it's a matter of leverage, you'd do much better using your nuclear weapons to push um, some nearby asteroids down onto the surface of Mars than using them directly on Mars. Okay, make a big um, hole in it, yeah. Okay. Uh, but, no, Mars already does have very big holes in it. So um, the surface pressure at the bottom of Hellas Basin is certainly a lot higher, significantly higher, not a lot higher, than um, the surface pressure. Um, well, uh, well, look at, yeah, looking at your, your, your thing backwards, I mean, if the mid-stratosphere is a comparable pressure to the surface of Mars, one would imagine that a hole that's, you know, equivalently deep to that distance, so you know, thirty odd kilometers, um, would be you know getting towards sensible pressures. Yeah, it's that... I mean, making. A, I mean, uh, you know, the world doesn't like making big holes. I mean, although the crust of Mars 
is very thick and rigid compared to the crust of the Earth. Um, it's noticeable that even when you hit it with um, an object that's sort of like a thousand um, kilometers across or 500 kilometers across, like the impactor that created Hellas, you only end up with a, you only end up with a hole about eight kilometers deep. Um, I, think, I think that, you know, the, the amount of isostatic uplift you would expect if you removed 30 kilometers of um, crust would be absolutely massive. I don't think you can have a stable hole that small. What you can do though, is that because Mars has craters, and this is also an, an approach that's talked about for the moon, do you really need a whole planetary biosphere if all you want to do is live a nice human life? Isn't it easier just to put a roof over one large crater? Yeah, that, I mean, that, certainly that, that, is, that is, I mean, that's Elon Musk's idea, isn't it? Basically to try and create sort of habitable um, uh, areas um, within the planet, be they kind of above ground or built into the ground or whatever but you know that's that's the broad approach that he's taking um so we talked quite a bit about mars um venus is an, another interesting case so talk me through the history of venus because it, it didn't always used to be the hellhole it is now right um sorry uh it didn't always used to be no well we don't know how long ago um venus became what venus is today um, and, uh, again, we don't know, we have a tendency to think, people have a tendency to think that when things are more earth, more earth-like in some sort of like broad geophysical way, they're actually more earth-like, but yeah, it's quite possible that Venus had open oceans, um, in its early history. Um, and did it have plate tectonics as well or not? Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, it has, it has, I mean, we do know that there's been, uh, there was a sort of like global resurfacing event uh, on Venus sometime sort of like 600, 800 million years ago. Um, and because it's much more Earth-like in size, you can imagine that there's a larger source of, um, there's, a, there's a larger source of heat um, within it. So it might've had plate tectonics, but you know, Plate tectonics are not the only mode um, necessarily by which heat can move from the inside of the planet to the outside. Um, so whether it had plate tectonics like the but Earth, it also, there's, there's a lot tectonics. of question as to when plate tectonics started operating on the Earth. It's possible that the earliest Earth had a rather different um, mechanism for removing heat from the mantle. But it wasn't just about, plate tectonics aren't about heat, are they? They're, the main role is the biogeochemical cycling. That's the, you know, if you, do, if you lost your plate tectonics, that would be what would ultimately screw you, is the loss of biogeochemical cycling. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. But that would screw you over a very, very long period. Um, but yes, and that's absolutely true. But, uh, but, you know, the thing that makes plate tectonics happen is not a teleological need for there to be biogeochemical cycling, or at least that's not a way that I'd be comfortable about thinking about it. The way that, ge that, ge the way that plate tectonics happen um, is that uh, you is that the getting energy out of the out of the mantle through the crust um, requires mechanical deformation of the crust. Now, yeah, it, I mean it's it's a it's a convection process that cools you know as heat is distributed in a pan of boiling water. It's a you know it's a it's a similar process. But what I'm meaning is the actually, effect on life. It's actually, is it's actually not particularly like um, that form. I mean it's a convective process. But the thing 
that drives the process is cold crust falling, not hot mantle rising. Um, that's an important distinction that um, well, how does that? I mean, how does that work? I mean, surely what goes up must come down. You connect that the whole system has to be imbalanced, yeah, doesn't but, it? So but, why, yes, why one more than the other? But, but what's happening? And there is a view, and this, there, this is uh, a long-standing um, issue in, I suppose, pedagogy of uh, plate tectonics. But the um, the bits of ocean crust at the edge of the oceans, which are being subducted, are being pulled down by gravity, that pulls apart the crust in the center of the ocean basins, and it's the reduction of pressure caused by that rifting which leads to the um, heat coming up. So basically, the heat comes up, the proximate source of the heat at a mid-ocean ridge is quite shallow compared to the pulling, the, the weight of the cold crust going down. So the idea, so it's not quite, so you get a slightly, you get a bit of a misapprehension if you think of it as being driven by hot hot stuff coming up. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not like hot plumes. I mean, like Hawaii is a hot <laughs> exactly. plume, right? So you basically what you're kind of thinking of is it's cold drag. But at the end of the day, the whole process is convective. The, the point I was making about Venus and plate tectonics is my understanding is that plate tectonics drives the stabilization in temperature of the Earth. Um, <clears throat> so um, you you have carbon dioxide coming out of volcanoes, you have the um, weathering of uh, silicate rocks, and that keeps the temperature of the earth um, comfortable uh, and temperate. And if, if that process was to stop, then you would have um, no um, you know, capacity to support life, the atmosphere would go out of balance, and you would quickly end up with um, uh, a situation where the, that thermostat process stopped and the earth would, um, I think, freeze because of the loss of carbon yeah, dioxide. And, and, the... and we, we see this, we, we, we see occasions where this has happened in earth history. So, yeah, you're quite right. There's a, there's a snowballing process, right? There, there's, there, there, there's this wonderful work which was done by two different teams in the early 1980s, which shows a very simple feedback mechanism whereby, as you say, carbon dioxide can be taken out of the atmosphere by weathering processes and weathering processes increase in efficiency when things get warmer. So if you warm up the earth with carbon dioxide, you also speed up the processes by which the land takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And this is seen as sort of like the, uh, the long-term non-biological thermostat mechanism, which explains how the earth can have a reasonably stable temperature, even though the sun gets significantly brighter over time. Yeah, the faint um, young sun paradox explored, yeah, right? Exactly. You and you do need to have a continuous um, new 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 um, flux of carbon dioxide. That, but you do get this. I mean, the the whole point of the snowball Earth um, argument, which let's talk about the more recent, the Neoproterozoic snowball Earth, which is what's sort of about. 700, 800 million years ago. and comes So just before the Cambrian explosion, the uh, origin of complex life, right? I don't know, was, uh, do, you, do, you, do, you consider, do you consider the Jurassic as just yesterday? It's not just before, but yeah. I mean, I, I'm not well, taking the, well, the, 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 the point I'm making is that- remember, there's a lot of time involved here. But the yeah, point yeah, but, but, but the reason to mention that is because, uh, and it's not, it, it's not inconsequential, that we haven't had a snowball since the invention of the arsehole that once you can um, pass food through an animal and then out the back end so that the animal doesn't end up just building more and more and more mass, you're not pulling more, you know, you, you, you cut that 
you know, hyper sequestration of carbon off. And therefore you don't end up snowballing. Right. It's, it's, I you know, it's not, a, it's not a I coincidence. I'm not, I'm not convinced by that argument. Um, I think, um, I think a stronger argument quite possibly is simply that there's um, a level of solar insulation up beyond which you can't get a snowball and the Proterozoic may well have been the last one of those. Um, okay. I don't think it's necessarily, I mean, the phosphorus cycle changes hugely with the um, uh, Cambrian explosion, but I'm not sure. The, the phosphorus cycle, what, what happens there? You teased me. Um, an well, it becomes topic, much but, more um, effective to move phosphorus. I mean, um, the R-soil is a very good way of moving phosphorus from the shallow oceans to the deep oceans. Um, and that was something that couldn't happen before. But the, the, but the point about the snowball earth is that, yes, you, you can have a breakdown of the weathering thermostat because as the ice, if you have the continents up around the poles um, and ice starts coming down over them, then you're losing that weathering feedback because you're losing surface um, all the time. And so that means that uh, eventually you get what's called a snowball or a slush ball, but eventually enough carbon dioxide- So you get, what, you get more weathering overall or you get less weathering overall when the continents are on the poles? Uh, you get less. Um, but don't you have lots of abrasion from the ice? Yeah, but you're underneath the ice. But, then, the but that, but that till, then gets, till then gets scraped off and it will be exposed in the ocean. So you might, might have more mass, but it's less immediately in contact with the atmosphere, right? Yeah, um, but it turns out that, at the, the, that having ice cutting down on the weathering surface is an important part of snowballs. Um, okay, so that basically it's the lack of contact between the atmosphere directly contacting the rock that causes it, right? So you get glacial till that builds up, but it builds up under huge mounds. They might be in contact with the well, ocean, so you get. Think about glacial till. Um, I mean, most of an ice cap is not active glaciers, right? Um, well, yeah, you get glacial streams, right? And then so a lot of it's sort of kind of sitting there, and then you get a lot of erosion in a small a small area. But the point is that what oh, comes out of the bottom oh, of the glacier when uh, sorry, I was thinking about this. No, I've got this entirely the wrong way around. Um, I'm sorry. Um, and if we want to go and edit this out, we can do that later. No, we're too lazy to edit. And, and we also want to show the world that you get stuff wrong. It's important. Okay, well, that's important. Because no one has it, ever seen it, this happen before. It's a, it's it, like... it's a, it, it's, I got it completely the wrong way around. It's having the continents at the equator that matters. Because then you get weathering continuing, even as ice is spreading down from the poles. And so carbon dioxide is still being pulled out even as the planet is getting colder. And that's a special situation you get whereby you can get a complete, um, a complete snowball. But my point about this all was that the snowball, that you don't need plate tectonics to break the snowball, you just need volcanism. And volcanism doesn't have to be associated with plate tectonics. What happens is that once the um, snowball is set, you can then have an awful lot of carbon dioxide start building up without any weathering at all. And eventually, yeah. because of course the snowball... That's what gets you out of the snowball, right? So it's two different feedbacks, right? The snowball grows because of the ice albedo feedback. Yeah. But eventually, and, it, and the weathering feedback um, doesn't, doesn't address that. But eventually, you will get enough greenhouse gases back into the atmosphere through volcanoes. From, from the volcanoes. But how do you get volcanoes down. without plate tectonics? I don't understand how you can get a volcano oh? without plate tectonics. Well... You said uh, that you can get volcanoes. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Hotspots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, also, um, but, but I don't think on their own, they wouldn't be enough, would they? Oh, no. But if you don't have, but uh, this, was, this all goes back to our discussion of Venus. 
the fact there would yeah. be some sort of global tectonic regime on Venus in the early years, whether it would look like plate tectonics on the Earth or look like something else. And if you look at what Venus looks like now, it doesn't look as though what happened um, uh, 600, 800 million years ago what look, doesn't look like plate tectonics. It looks like something very different and strange. The other point to, to recomplexify our story is of course that some people believe you can only have plate tectonics with oceans because you need to have hydrated minerals at the subduction zones in order for it to work properly. Yeah, because otherwise it all gets gummed up because there's not enough kind of lube, right? Yeah, that basically. Okay. And, but, that, but again, not being able to do plate tectonics like the Earth does doesn't mean not being able to recycle um, carbonates and carbon dioxide. Because okay, one, of the, you... one of the great things about the fact that we now at least are thinking about exoplanets um, is that we're starting to think about you know, other modes other than those seen on Earth and inferred into the history of um, Mars and Venus. So just, just to, um, I've got a couple of other questions to ask you, but just wanted, before we move on, uh, just to kind of deal with this Venus thing. So you're basically saying that Mars is no walking apart to, uh, to terraform. Um, you know, there might be some possibilities, um, but you may well not have a, something that gets very Earth-like in the end anyway. What about Venus? I mean, obviously the, the, the pressure on Venus is enormously higher. It's sort of like people think of Venus as having an atmosphere. Really, it's got an ocean of carbon dioxide, right? And the pressure on the surface is um, similar to the crush depth of a submarine. It's, it's, it's astonishingly high pressure atmosphere, right? So um, what, um, you know, what hope is there for a planet that is now that different from Earth? You know, you shouldn't, certainly couldn't land a spaceship on Venus and go and have a walk. You'd be boiled away in seconds, right? Absolutely. I think there, yeah, I mean, and I don't think there's a very clear... You know, we were talking earlier about leverage. Um, I don't think there's a very clear leverage approach to doing this. I think that um, uh, I haven't thought about terraforming Venus for a while. Um, but my suspicion is that one of the things you probably need to do is just cool it down a great deal. Yeah, I mean, if you surely if you put um, the, uh, some kind of sunshade geoengineering or terraforming on Venus, then that um, carbon dioxide would snow out and you'd have you know, a huge kind of snowball of carbon dioxide. And that would well, be, has, you know, yeah, at least but, a starting point, right? But think about, but yes, but think about, think about how long that's going to take you. I mean, carbon dioxide snows out at what? About minus 100. Um, and at the moment, the surface temperature is 450. And that's rock. Rock stays hot for a very, very long time, even if, and even if you stop the insulation. Remember also that actually the Venus is absorbing less solar radiation than the earth is because it has a very high albedo but it's still very very hot so yes in theory if you put a dinner plate um 4000 kilometers across at the venus sun l1 point so that it just stood there in front of the sun with venus in its shade yes over time it would cool down but um a planet's worth of very hot rock takes a very long time to cool down. So Venus, to summarise the points you've got here, Venus is basically a non-starter. Mars is a very tall order. So terraforming here looks a bit sci-fi. There's a couple of other cases that are worth mentioning. So the first one is, um, what about the long-term future of the Earth? Now, that's where geoforming, uh, geoengineering and terraforming start to merge because over time, 
the Earth is going to get hotter and hotter and hotter because of the faint young sun paradox. Um, eventually, it's going to get to the point where it's un uninhabitable, and then we'll tip over, the oceans will start to boil, and that's it, game over, no more functioning planet, right? So um, how many millions of years are we talking about in the future before that kind of process happens, where not just like a band of very hot desert in the middle, but where you know uh, the, the Earth sort of is at risk of becoming an uninhabitable planet? Well, the, the literature on this is quite divided, but somewhere between 500 million and 1.3 billion years. Um, and the thing that you, you realize, the important thing here is that the, um, that thermostat um, that you mentioned um, becomes less and less capable of operating as carbon dioxide pressures become less and less. And so since carbon dioxide pressures, and I should, we are talking here on timescales, many thousands of times larger than the timescales of the current global warming. These aren't sort of like closely matched things going in two different directions. But uh, it was, there's a paper, influential paper by Lovelock in the 1980s um, on the, uh, finding out that although you might think, people have tended to think before then that, you know, the earth stayed habitable until the sun turned into a red giant. In fact, um, the lack of a thermostat system kicks in an awful lot sooner. And so I think that's when he came up with the 500 million year um, calculation. Other work since has, 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 has stretched that time out a bit. But yes, it, but the problem doesn't come necessarily from the sun becoming so much brighter it's because the earth is running up towards the end of its uh, of the active life of that thermostat system because once there's no carbon dioxide or very little carbon dioxide left in the atmosphere so where um, would that where's the carbon dioxide going i wasn't aware um, that it really went anywhere it's 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 turning it, it it's turning in it's turning into carbonate um rocks it's weather it's weathering away okay so the weathering becomes faster when it gets hotter and so right. And so as the sun goes on getting hotter, weathering gets faster, and you actually have less and less of a pool of um, uh, carbon dioxide to work with. In oh, okay, so basically, like, the, the, the balance, the, the, the ability to balance depends on the sun become, being in a favourable range. And then basically, it's like your central heating controller can only turn your heating on or off, and it can't, like, turning the thermostat up when you're cold, but the heating is on doesn't make any difference. It just means that the central heating won't turn off for a much longer period of time, right? Yeah, so, I think it's a bit like that, and this takes okay. us into the... Um, in, in, into the excellent episode of Peep Show where Jez uh, argues that you must turn the thermostat up an awful long way to get the um, system to really, really rush to get hotter and then turn it down and fool it. Um, but yes, yeah, so basically, <laughs> uh, uh, the long term... Yes, my, my nan had a similar approach to central heating controls. Um, the the, the, the long-term history of the Earth, um, I mean, you know, the very, very broadest brush is that the sun gets brighter and the Earth's carbon dioxide um, level gets lower. Um, over okay. the long term, that's the story. And, so, and the Earth's carbon dioxide level pre-Anthropocene is very low by geohistorical terms. And so if you, if you take the trend out another sort of like 300, 400 million years, which is, you know, like equivalent to a, a large chunk of the Phanerozoic, um, then you get to the point where the Earth can basically no longer control its temperature and starts going up with the sun. And you also, of course, get to the point that um, if there's very little carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it's rather hard to have a flourishing biosphere.
Okay. So um, we've got that to look forward to in three or 400 million years. Then is that roughly kind of time uh, scale you're looking at? Somewhere between three, somewhere it starts kicking in around then, maybe may go, may go a lot longer. But there, this is another point where science fiction, or I think some sort of like recency bias just misleads us. Mammalian species do not last hundreds of millions of years. Um, no, I mean, we're not going to be around for, to see this, but it's still nice sort of, to... Um, any sort to... of... We, but pe people, t people do actually tend to think that sort of like now there are humans. Humans are part of the future of the Earth um, uh, for as long as the Earth has a future. And that's not, that's, that's not a terribly plausible idea. It's possible that some sort of um, intelligence that is uh, continuous with human intelligence continues all that way but yeah i mean the humans would, would speciate but at the end of the day they are a pretty adaptive species and can live in a wide variety of environments but there's no there's no way that they would still look you know like recognizably like modern humans in any more than a, you know tyran tyrannosaurus rex look like a chicken right you know these there's a lot of change that happens on that kind of time scale and that's yeah. you know, so roughly the, the kind of evolutionary time we're talking about so t-rex to chickens is roughly the kind of humans to post-humans that you're talking about there yeah. but it's interesting to think that i mean I, I i wasn't aware until you mentioned this that we've only got you know sort of less time now than between the earliest well pre just just before the dinosaurs when we've got lystrosaurus and stuff like that you know permian period we, we've got we've got around that amount of time left and then and then it's all uh, it's all well, over no, I, I, I say that that's the shortest term. Um, I mean, some work done, I can't remember who by, um, suggests that, you know, that the, the thermostat might keep going for another billion years. But the point is, it's okay. not five billion years. But yeah, it's not going to be la last as long until the sun becomes a red giant. We've got problems to worry about no, before we don't that. Get the, so, we don't get the bit at the end of the time machine where you see the, where so, the sun is visibly larger. Okay, so the um, but but that brings me on to the geoengineering thing. So let you know, let, let's just assume for literary convenience that we still have um, inexplicably humanoid uh, people uh, wandering around at this time, like Star Wars, uh, when everyone's human despite not being on Earth. Um, but um, we um, we could, in theory, be geoengineering to terraform our own planet, right? To you know, to to, to make the planet stay habitable or get back to habitable if it had drifted a little bit out of that. It's not inconceivable, right? Well, you see, that's the thing. I mean, you can imagine it um, geoengineering to keep the temperature within livable ranges. You can imagine possible ways that that might be done, but uh, it would have to be on a far larger scale than the sort of like one percent of insulation that you're dealing oh, with. Oh yeah, but 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 in, but conceivably, you know, the the kind of space sunshade geoengineering starts to look reasonably practical at that point, and. Let's face it, if you've got 300 million years to work yeah, on it, no, you imagine you've come um, up with something pretty good, time, right? At the same time, though, um, you, run into the, you run into the problem that um, uh, not having enough carbon dioxide on the, on, on the surface of the planet is a real problem for running a biosphere. So you'd also would, but, would that, but wouldn't that sort itself out again? So once, you, once you got rid of the, um, the extra insulation, wouldn't the carbon dioxide level go back to normal or not? I'd have to think about that. It, you're quite right. It might, it, it, it might do. I was going to say the other thing is, I mean, presumably um, you could find other ways to um, drive the carbon cycle. Um, but at this stage, you're having to sort of like change both, change both the physical and biological parameters of life on Earth. Um, okay. uh, I mean... The, well, that'd be interesting to... Yeah, we should, perhaps we should about, sit down and do this a bit more thoroughly and do a paper on it. Um, <laughs> I I have I have actually looked at you know the idea of using um, uh, geo solar geoengineering to deal with the faint young sun paradox as a, 
a way of also just poking models, really. But but it's it, but it's fun. I do like to do a bit. Of, some of my papers have been on sci-fi mm -hmm. topics. I've done I've done three 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 papers or, or short pieces um, now on exoplanets. So mm -hmm. it's a you know, bit of a uh, indulgence of mine. Um, just before we skip out of the solar system altogether, um, uh, are there any hopes for moons? Could we do anything useful? I mean, like Titan, a interesting interesting holiday destination. You can get out of your spaceship, wander around, look at the methane lakes. You want to go back inside fairly quickly. It's not a place to sort of hang around for too long. Um, are there I, any? I, I, I mean, you know, yes. I mean, one of the early um, terraforming books is um, uh, Heinlein's Farmer in the Sky, which is about terraforming Ganymede, though in a way that's not, as I remember it, um, particularly well explained. I just can't... So where's Ganymede? Uh, Ganymede is the largest of the moons of Jupiter. Okay. Um, and it seems to me that, um, I mean, with all these things, I, I can't imagine, there's, there's a kind of sort of like mid-20th century um, and earlier, um, Lebensraumy thing about the sense of thing that you know humans need more places to be, and I'm just not sure I buy that as a picture. Of... Well, Elon, Elon Musk's still all over that today, isn't he? I mean, it's, that's very much his thing. Well, no, his his thing it's slightly different. His thing, I mean, his uh, his stated rationale isn't that um, you, that humans need more space; it's that humans need two different spaces. Okay. Um, uh, whereas, uh, but it's just, but whereas, you know, like when Heinlein is like writing, every man needs a shit, basically. Uh, when Heinlein is um, writing Farmer in the Sky, um, it's sort of like the pe I mean, the clues in the title. It's sort of like the expansion into the prairies, but done on Ganymede. And I just yeah. don't think people circling think back to my comments from earlier in the show, right? Yeah, but I don't think people really think of the future. Of, of future human history as being one of untrammeled expansion anymore. I mean, we have now uh, a world in which for the first time in many, many centuries, we're projecting a demographic decrease by the end of the century. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. So this, yeah. I, I, I would much rather see, for myself, I'd much rather see Titan as it is than Titan turned into muddy slush so that um, I could walk around it shirt sleeves. And I have a similar... But is it, but is it possible? Let, let, I mean, I, I understand I there, there are philosophical it, questions I'm, and practical ones, but, but you know, it, are, is there hope for terraforming moons or not? Well, uh, the, the Earth's moon, you can do that, um, you can do that crater um, stunt. Um, but yeah. you know, the Earth's moon, really, I mean, Again, you could give the Earth's moon a temporary atmosphere. You don't need to keep an atmosphere on geological timescales in order to have one that lasts longer than any human civilization, right? Um, yeah. So it, there's, there's a real problem with timescale. But with, also with Titan, you have the problem that you're dealing with an insulation well below 1% of here. And, yeah, it is very cold, right? And your plants are not going to like that very much. And even if you greenhouse the hell out of it, um, it just seems to me that I, I just can't see the um, I can't see the mileage in that. And it's interesting. Again, you know, we're remapping some of the discussions that happen conversationally in science fiction during the 1970s and 80s, where you get considerably more interest in hollowing out asteroids and living on the insides of asteroids than in terraforming planets. And it's certainly true that if you turn the asteroid belt into big 
big hollow habitats that you spin up from internal gravity, you get far, far, far more um, surface area than you ever would on a planet. Yeah, because there's a lot of asteroids, right? Yeah. Uh, and, but also... So they do tend to bang into each other occasionally, which is, is problematic. Is, is the planet is an incredibly... I mean, in terms of um, ways to get things to stick to a surface, planets are incredibly inefficient because they use gravity, which, as you know, is an incredibly weak force. Yeah. If you um, instead have um, inside-out planets, they need far less atmosphere. The atmosphere doesn't leak out into space all the time. And you can yeah. live on the inside. So if you want, if you want a, a solar system, uh, and this is not not so much musky as Bezosy, if you want a solar system um, with you know enough real estate for a trillion people, inside out, inside out small planets made out of asteroids or indeed um, moons that no one has any other use for, as infinitely more efficient way of using the solar system's resources than relying on gravity to hold atmospheres onto the surfaces of small planets. That just okay. Matter. So just, just uh, turning back very briefly to your moon comment. Um, uh, obviously, you know, we like to name check our science fiction. So this is Iron Sky is obviously the utterly ludicrous science fiction uh, story of Nazis post-World War Two going to... Um, uh, live on the moon and then coming back to reinvade the earth probably one of the least the least um uh, sensible science fiction books that we'll check here or films i think Sky was just a film wasn't it um but you know could is there any hope that that, that that future nazis could or indeed people of any political persuasion could indeed live on the moon well you could live i mean there's a long science fiction literature of um, of, of lunar colonization, it, but it almost always tends to be living in the moon. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, could you could you terraform it? I mean, I've I kind of thought the moon was a lost cause. There's no, there's no. I, I think the moon has no atmosphere at all, does it? It's like zero pressure, or does it have well, a very? It's not quite no atmosphere. There's a very small atmosphere. Um, but yeah, it's it's an atmosphere that you could um fit into a small office block in London um and have some change left over. It's an atmosphere that was. <laughs> appreciably enlarged by the takeoff of each um, Apollo um, uh, ascent module. Um, okay. But there again, as, you know, if you cover a decent sized crater with um, something a bit better than FD, um, you can, you can imagine having a place where you, which you could fill up with, um, locally produced oxygen since you know you i mean you do have a lot of sunlight so basically what you're, what you're thinking about is something a, a bit like the eden project but on the moon as opposed to really giving the moon its own atmosphere yeah, is, that, is that there's no, there's no the, i mean the have, and people have discussed giving the moon and as i say the fact that um the moon if you gave the moon an, uh, an atmosphere it would just lose it again um yeah, like, like a teenager's mobile phone. Um, okay. uh, but if, if you could, so you know, if you if you gave the moon an atmosphere and it lost an atmosphere in ten thousand years, that's still you know long enough to build the pyramids and see them turn into what you have here. One of the things about terraforming and about some of these big science fictional ideas is they really do push you up against both the question of what the limits of technology are and also these questions of time scale. 
Um, you know. But with the moon, like, where would you get the atmosphere from? Would you have to bring it from Earth, or can you generate it locally on the moon? I mean, like, well, I have no idea. Oxygen, I mean, you could generate the oxygen locally on the moon if you had enough energy, which you do because you've got um, you've got the sun. You could just you know you could take it out of electro electrolyzing silicates um, if you wanted to. Um, okay. But it's an unbelievably heavy-handed way of doing it, um, and it won't last. I mean, setting up a setting up a, a sort of like working biosphere on them. There have also been ideas of you know of sort of like tenting the whole moon just by having you know large do, have, putting up large towers and holding um, uh, holding a material just to hold everything in. I I mean. At this stage, you think, well, if you couldn't come close to doing that, well, maybe you would do that, but maybe you wouldn't want to. Um, it, 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 it doesn't seem obviously practical. The Mars ones sound sort of practical. They're, they're yeah, that's, also gases, because, but... that's also because Mars already looks sort of like the Earth. We can imagine those sort of like dune seas and those Inselbergs. And, you know, um, there's a reason why, uh, you know, Mars gets cast as the Wild West. It does kind of look a bit that way. So yeah, yeah that's, but again, I'm not sure. It seems to me that I mean, as as you know, the, in in the great Mars science fiction, the uh, Stan Robinson's Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, there is a continuous um, struggle between those who love Mars as it was and those who want to make it something else. And like Brexit. <laughs> Oh, I wish you hadn't said that. Um, <laughs> but but, but you know, the interesting thing is that um, what he does is invert the, the terrestrial environmental um, narrative because the people who want to keep nature as it is are the Reds and yeah. the people who want to change the world utterly are the Greens because they want to add life to a place that does not have it. And I think there's something wonderful about the way that Robinson uses that inversion to discuss the morality of what it is to change a world and what it, and who speaks for <clears throat> who speaks for nature and what sort of nature do they speak for and those seem to be actually really interesting issues um, and I would not like to see them um, resolved simply by um, Elon say so. We, we were talking about Mars. So the only, the only vaguely hopeful ideas appear to be um, uh, super greenhouse gases and maybe crashing asteroids into Mars. Is that, you know, in summary, broadly where we're at? Yeah, um, that's certainly better than spreading carbon black over the uh, over the ice caps. Um, I must say, I actually think. Um, this is something I almost did write up as a paper. The, you know, the, the greatest, one of the greatest planetary experiments you could do um, in the 21st century would be to um, hit Mars with a, not a very large, but a moderately sized asteroid. Because if there is um, an indigenous Martian biosphere of any sort, um, it will undoubtedly be adapted to make the most out of the burst of heat and warmth uh, and wetness that you get when you do that. And so instrumenting Mars up the wazoo and then dropping a large asteroid onto it um, would strike me as a really interesting thing to do. But it's also possibly somewhat incompatible um, with... Uh, putting lots of people there on Musk's starships because I think it might be quite nasty for people nearby. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, a big asteroid would tend to cover the whole planet with um, 
little throws. No, it? well, I mean, um, you, but, but you know, you, 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 I mean, if you a reasonably small, I mean, you know, uh, not least because moving big asteroids does take you an awful lot of energy. But if you found something sort of like, um, I don't know, a kilometer or so across in the Martian Trojans and nudged it down. Um, that's that's the sort of thing that you can imagine would be a plausible thing for the second half of the 21st century. Yep, certainly a bit of planetary billiards. Sounds pretty good fun. Um, So um, before we wrap up, which we um, ought to do, as we've been on, this is the longest podcast we've ever done. uh, Deservedly so, because you're quite an interesting chap, I think. Um, But the the, the other obvious question is exoplanets. Now, my just brief take on this, as someone who works a little bit on exoplanets, is that you know, we, we don't really have a very clear idea of what we what they're like. So, you know, yes, we could conceivably terraform them. Very hard to know where to start from because we don't know, you know, what, what, what the source material is. And obviously you've got the slightly inconvenient um, issue of them being several light years away. So even sending a, pro, a probe the size of a paperclip out that far is, you know, at the very, very edge of humans' technology. And to send, you know, anything meaningful you know, like a generation ship or suspended animation ship or something like that would be, um, you know, uh, this is, you know, we're, tr- we're truly in the realms of sci-fi because, you know, there's no, there's no conceivable near-term technology that would be able to, to, to build a generation ship and then send it out for, you know, a few millennia to go and reach the nearest star system to, 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 to find, you know, whatever we might find out there. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't think that's, I mean, I don't think humans um, terraforming exoplanets is a pretty interesting idea. I think you're on to a much more um, interesting idea in your recent papers of uh, seeing um, planetary engineering, what they call in the, in the SETI business these days, as techno signatures. Um, and again, you know, to just yeah. go back to Lovelock, I mean, it was Jim who pointed out that the most obvious sign of life you might see on an exoplanet was CFCs in the atmosphere. Uh, yeah, so just just to, as you mentioned, my papers uh, always nice to use the Review Two podcast as a shameless opportunity to plug my own work. I've got a couple of papers out on this that people might be interested in reading. So one is uh, the current one is um, pre-industrial societies on exoplanets. Um, it's just come out, and uh, that's sort of uh, colloquially titled "Little Green Farmers." Uh, the idea being that we could, you know, quite easily find farming civilizations on other planets if the conditions are right. Um, and I've also got uh, another one which is quite good fun um uh, called the deliberate destruction of planets and biospheres published in jabis some time ago um looking at um sort of death star type technologies of people ruining each other's planets deliberately which is quite a laugh uh and then um finally i think the first one of the series was um uh geoengineering on exoplanets which is looking for techno signatures of uh climate change um geoengineering um on other planets um partly to detect those civilizations but also partly to learn more about geoengineering and how it performs so that we could um conduct the first interplanetary ip theft um that had uh, that has ever been done so yeah that's my work on the topic um so a bit of a a, a meander around the um solar system and our uh near neighborhood of stars uh the broad conclusion is that um uh, there's a lot more um, interesting literature on terraforming than there is practical ideas. Uh, <laughs> probably no Nazis on the moon for the foreseeable future. Um, although with, at, at a bit of a push, you might be able to do something vaguely interesting with Mars, but it won't be easy. 
Um, anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? No, I think, that, I, I, think, I think we've, we, we've covered the waterfronts, um, real and metaphorical, reasonably well. Um, Charlie, Ed, in this longest of long podcasts. <laughs> okay, shall I wrap it up then? Yeah, thanks very much for coming on, Ollie. Cheers. Bye-bye. Welcome, Andrew. It was nice chatting to you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye.